Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I would like to thank all of our fans out there. We cannot do this without you. Please be sure to leave us a positive review and tell a friend about us. The more you share our podcast, the bigger we become. We have surpassed a million downloads, and it's all because of you. And now, it's time to throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. Steve Yoder, and with us as always, our award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Acker Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Ohio has played an integral role in the history of NASA since the beginning. John Glenn, the first American to orbit Earth from Ohio. Neil Armstrong, first human to step foot on the moon from Ohio. Judy Resnick, who lost her life aboard the doomed space shuttle Challenger, from Ohio. William Gerstenmeyer, the guy in charge of the International Space Station for more than a decade, from Ohio. What American city, do you think, has produced more astronauts than any other city in the history of NASA? Here's a hint. It's in Ohio. According to a 2019 story in Business Insider, the eight spacemen who have hailed from Cleveland outnumber cities like Boston, Chicago, and New York. Of course, we have astronauts from all over the state, at least 21 of them. That makes Ohio the fourth biggest producer of space travelers behind only New York, California, and the Mission Control Headquarters of Texas. Hey, they don't call us the birthplace of aviation just because of the Wright brothers. Over the next week, we've got an astronaut theme going, a handful of mysteries connected with our high-flying fellow Ohioans. Tonight, join us as we take a look at some things our astronauts either said, did, or saw that got UFO fans all excited. Is it possible we caught them hinting at information that supported the idea of extraterrestrial life? 
Or were there perfectly reasonable explanations for some of the seemingly inexplicable experiences they had? Then we'll be back Sunday and next Wednesday for more Space Race Mysteries. So let's get started. On February the 20th, 1962, NASA astronaut John Glenn was launched into space inside a tiny capsule called Friendship 7. The craft circled Earth three times before splashing down four hours and 55 minutes after liftoff. That made Glenn the first American to orbit the Earth. The Soviets had already beaten us into space with the first inanimate object when they launched the satellite Sputnik. And they beat us into space with the first human when Yuri Gagarin left our atmosphere and took a spin around the globe. But Glenn's trip was still a big deal. It brought the U.S. up to par with the Soviets. And that meant a lot as both nations turned their attention to getting a man on the moon. It was also a big deal for the Buckeye State. John Glenn was born and raised in central Ohio, joining the planet in the Guernsey County city of Cambridge in 1921 and growing up next door in the Muskingum County village of New Concord. Now, the trip John Glenn made around the Earth was more than just for show. His mission collected data for NASA on the ability of astronauts to function in a weightless environment. During the trip, Glenn described in minute detail everything he saw, said, did, and heard. Capsule is turning around. Oh, that view is tremendous. He had been trained to read the stars, and he reported his perspective of the night sky. Uh, The sky above is absolutely black, completely black. I can see stars, though, up above. I do not have any of the constellations identified as yet. Over. Mission Control told him what constellations should be coming into view, and he started to identify some familiar patterns. And then... During the first of his three orbits, as the sun rose behind him, he saw something a little startling. Uh, This is Friendship 7, and I'll try to describe what I'm in here. Uh, I'm in a a big mass of some very small particles uh, that are brilliantly lit up, like they're luminescent. I never saw anything like it. They're around the little, they're coming by the capsule, uh, and they look like little stars, a whole shower of them coming by. Wait, a shower of moving stars, and he was in the center of them? Uh, They swirl around the capsule and go in front of the window, and they're all brilliantly lighted. Uh, They probably average maybe uh, seven or eight feet apart, but I can see them all down below me also. Within a few minutes, the mysterious particles started to vanish. As I looked back up out the window, I had uh, literally thousands of small luminous particles uh, swirling around the capsule and going away from me at maybe uh, three to five miles per hour. Uh, Now that I am out in the bright sun, uh, they seem to have disappeared. 
Glenn returned to Earth with neither he nor ground control knowing what he saw. The little lights were referred to as John Glenn's fireflies. A few months later, in May of 1962, Scott Carpenter, an astronaut from Colorado, was launched into orbit. He took a Mercury spacecraft called Aurora 7 for a spin, and one of his new missions was to try and observe the fireflies that John Glenn had seen in the hopes of figuring out what they were. And the fireflies showed up again, this time during his third orbit, and just as with Glenn, as the sun began to rise. Sunrise. Ah, beautiful, lighted firefly that time. It was luminous that time. I, I have the fireflies. They are very bright. They uh, are capsule emanating. I can wrap the hatch and stir off hundreds of them. Wrap the side of the of the capsule. Huge streams come out. They uh, some appear to glow. Let me yaw around the other way. Some appear to glow, but I don't believe they really do. It's just in the light of the sun. Then Carpenter took a guess as to what his little bright traveling partners were. Nine, their little tiny white pieces of frost. I judge from this that the whole side of the capsule must have frost on it. And so it was determined that condensation had gathered on the outside of the spacecraft as they passed from the cold night into the warm day and then froze again. And that created a layer of frost. So as the craft passed through the sunrise, the flakes would float off. It wasn't the only source of fireflies, though. In 1965, Wally Shira from New Jersey and Thomas Stafford from Oklahoma saw the little glowing orbs after they had ejected their frozen urine. When the sunlight hit the urine, it created a moving star field. Years later, Shira would say, we peed all over the world. Shira thought the urine drops glinting in the sunlight were so beautiful, he took photos of them and had them printed for display. When asked about them, he called it the constellation of Orion, And so began a long history of astronauts admiring the constellations they had created. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Next, we're going to July 18, 1969. That was the third day of the flight of Apollo 11, the first trip to take us to the lunar surface. On board was Commander Neil Armstrong, 
a homegrown farm boy from Wapakoneta, Ohio, in Auglaize County. He was on his way to becoming the first human to walk on the moon. His mission colleagues were Buzz Aldrin from New Jersey, who became the second man to walk on the moon, just a step behind Neil, and the pilot of the command module, Michael Collins, a former Ohio resident himself. Collins was the son of a career army officer and lived all over the country, including a stint at Fort Hayes, an old military post near Columbus. On the day in question, as the trio were speeding toward the moon, Buzz Aldrin was staring into space when a glint of light caught his attention. There was an object following the ship. He couldn't figure out how far away it was, That's always a problem in space because there is no other object to help gauge perspective. But the object was definitely keeping pace with the spacecraft. And it was not an object they had been trained to expect. This is a problem, but not for the reason you might think. Aldrin quietly called the object to the attention of Armstrong and Collins because they all knew better than to mention it out loud. They knew if they said something like, Hey, Houston, we've got a light out the window and it's following us to the moon, then people on the ground were going to go ape. It might endanger the mission or occupy a lot of the astronauts' time trying to explain what was going on. And to be really frank, it didn't take a lot for NASA back then to pull an astronaut out of the program for a fairly minor concern. Did you want to be the guy who tells NASA you're seeing things you can't explain? So very shrewdly, Neil Armstrong figured out how to enlist Mission Control's help in looking for an answer without telling them what they're seeing around the capsule. We're going to play the audio here of his very clever effort. He and Michael Collins are both in this. You won't understand everything being said, but all you need to know is they are trying to determine whether the object flying along with the ship could be one of several panels that have separated from the command module as a normal part of the flight procedure. And they're going to do it without ever mentioning to Houston that they have an object of interest. Go ahead, 11, over. Do you have any idea where the uh, is with respect to us? Semi. Apollo 11, Houston, the S-4B is about 6,000 nautical miles from you now, over. Okay, thank you. Okay. Mark that panel off the list. If it's 6,000 miles away, they definitely wouldn't be seeing it. But there are a couple of other items that detached, and so they nonchalantly bring those up next. Houston Apollo 11, how's the PTC looking? Stand by. 11, Houston, the PTC looks uh, great to us, over. Okay, do you have any idea what happened to the previous one? We have absolutely no idea, over. 
Okay. Did it look like it was all right, and then just all of a sudden start uh, diverging? Uh, that's negative. Uh, if you look at the plot, which we'll say for you, and let you see it uh, post-flight, it's got. It started off immediately on the first rev and uh, just spiraled out to about oh uh, twenty to twenty degrees in pitch, and then uh, it it seemed to be setting up a a spiral around an offset uh, pitch point of about uh, twenty degrees off from uh, ninety degrees, uh, but we didn't want to take a chance that it would. Uh, would become stable at that point. Uh, we thought it might diverge, so we called you and uh, started over again. Over. Okay, no complaints. I was just curious as to what had happened. Yeah, that was all. Just curious. The three men let it drop. They finished the trip to the moon, landed the eagle on the Sea of Tranquility, and Neil Armstrong took his giant leap for mankind. Because nobody can prove what that object was, it is, by definition, an unidentified flying object. In later interviews, when this whole incident was revealed, the astronauts brushed off any suggestion that the object was being controlled by some kind of sentient life form. They said 99%. They were confident it must have been a panel that appropriately had been separated from the ship. Since there is no friction to slow things down in space, the panel would have been traveling along with the spacecraft at the same speed with which it was released. But again, officially, it's just a theory. Here's a second strange sighting from Apollo 11 that has led to endless debate among UFO researchers. While Armstrong and Aldrin were down on the moon, bouncing around and picking up rocks and planting flags, Michael Collins was floating hundreds of miles above them in the command module. About an hour and a half into the moonwalk, Collins looked down at the moon's surface and saw a suspicious small white object. Here he is communicating with Houston. Columbia, this is Houston. Go ahead, over. Roger, no marks on the left that time. I did see a suspiciously small white object with uh, coordinates are. Go ahead with the coordinates on the small white object. We know the white object isn't the lunar module that Armstrong and Aldrin rode to the moon's surface, and that it's sitting on the edge of a crater. 
NASA later came to the conclusion that the object was simply a rock. But when the UFO community read this in the transcript, they insisted it was something more. And over the years, their musings became a full-blown conspiracy theory. In some minds, that white object became an alien communication beacon called the monolith. And they claimed a future secret space trip even brought the monolith back to Earth to run tests on it. UFO enthusiasts also went wild with yet another Apollo 11 incident. During the moonwalk, there were a few minutes where nothing was recorded and so didn't end up on a transcript. A story evolved that the audio had been cut intentionally because Neil Armstrong had just confirmed there were aliens on the moon, and NASA was fearing that revelation would cause a global panic. This became something of a big deal. On September the 29th, 1969, a publication called National Bulletin Magazine printed this story. They said, while the conversation between Armstrong and Mission Control wasn't recorded, hundreds of ham radio operators monitoring that flight heard the whole thing. They released the missing dialogue in what has been called the Pepper Transcript. It was over the top. A conversation with Neil in which he was describing huge creatures watching the astronauts from a crater and that the crater hit a whole row of alien spacecraft. Now, we can laugh about this, but the rumor became so persistent that NASA had to address it and offer an official denial. In a letter to Congress in January of 1970, They acknowledged there had been a break in the audio and video feed, but said it was no more than a technical error. The conversation was still carried live. And if anyone thought Neil Armstrong was using that moment to describe a scary encounter with little green men, surely it would have been reported on by the nearly 1,500 media representatives who were present at the Houston Center for this historic moment and heard every word said. There have been other strange incidents involving astronauts who were not from Ohio. We're not gonna get into those. But I want to mention one of them only because it's an astronaut who would beg us to keep an open mind. Edgar Mitchell, born in Texas, was the sixth man to walk on the moon. He made his journey aboard Apollo 14. On his way back to Earth, he had a powerful spiritual experience that changed his life. Mitchell made no effort to hide his belief in the paranormal and psychic phenomenon. After his retirement from NASA, he went on to found the Mind Science Institute in Los Angeles. He also believed in UFOs. He gave interviews where he discussed meeting government officials from several countries who confirmed to him that they had made contact. And he encouraged office holders to get classified documents released. 
He believed aliens had been found at that famous crash site in Roswell, New Mexico, and that the United States was using engineering secrets that were obtained from UFOs. He once told a reporter, we all know that UFOs are real. Now the question is where they come from. He claimed aliens had been making contact for more than 60 years, something he was only privileged to know because of his rank at NASA. Mitchell died in 2016 at the age of 85. And while throughout his life, he said he knew several of his astronaut buddies believed as he did, he always protected their identity. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. We are also a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts, the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Also, check out our new YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Ohio Mysteries. On a hot summer night in 1988, Jane Borowski was stabbed 27 times by an unknown man. She was seven months pregnant. My name is Jane Borowski. I survived, and I remember everything. Jane is the lone survivor of a serial killer. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell, and this is Dark Valley. Join us in our search for America's unknown serial killer. Subscribe to Dark Valley, out now.